Okay, hello everybody and welcome to Investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. Today is November 18th, 2020. I'm your host, Arusha Pierce, and today we have Kenny Polcari on the show. Kenny is a managing partner of Case Capital Advisors and chief market strategist at Slatestone Wealth. Thanks for being here, Kenny. Thanks, Arusha, for having me. It's always a pleasure. I feel like I'm coming home after my That's six years at O'Neill Securities. That's right, right. Welcome home, man. Uh, on today's podcast, we are going to talk about the current markets. We're going to talk about the concept of remaining open-minded and not sticking your head in the ground. And we will end the episode with a few current ideas. Let's get right into the current market. The current market is in a confirmed uptrend. Uh, we have two distribution days on the NASDAQ, one on the S&P 500. Kenny, what are your thoughts on this market right now? Well, I love the fact that you say we're in a confirmed uptrend, considering today the market ended up selling off 350 points and it yeah. you know picked up speed as we moved into the end of the day. I do think you're right, though. I do think the broader market over time is in an uptrend, but but in the short term, and you know, I tend to because of my history, I tend to think day to day because of where I worked and spent yeah. the bulk of my life um, is that I do think that we're in for some uh, some short term volatility, and I think today was just a perfect example of another day where we hit some. Uh, kind of an air pocket and a void in the bid side of the market. And we saw what happened, right? Is the, because uh, yep. nothing's really changed between yesterday when the market rallied and today when the market sold off. The only thing that changed today is that New York City announced that they're closing their school system starting tomorrow. And all of a sudden, everybody in the country starts selling stocks, which makes no sense at all. But that's the <laughs> that's headline, true. by the way. But that's the headline on Bloomberg today is yeah. that they credited the sell off to the fact that the Blasio came out and said, no one going to school anymore. And I thought to myself, Geez, why would people sell Johnson and Johnson and Coke and Intel and Microsoft because New York City kids are staying home from school? That doesn't make a lot of sense. But what does make a lot of sense is that the market is still very anxious, right? There's still a lot of anxiety out there, still a lot of uncertainty out there. Stocks have gotten well ahead of themselves. Yeah. Nobody really expected the surge that we saw after the election. And the fact that the election is still not really settled, and I don't necessarily mean the president, because I think that is settled, but what isn't settled is the Senate. And so we're not going to know until January 6th now what happens in the Senate. And so a lot hinges on that election because it could change the face of the whole executive branch for at least the next two years until the next midterm cycle elections, right? And so therefore, I think the market's going to going to hit these pockets of uncertainty and cause days like you saw today. I'd yeah. actually like to see another one of these days. I'd like to see the market back off a little bit and be able to buy some cheaper stock. <laughs> yeah. So for, first talk about because you are looking at a shorter term time frame, but are you also balancing it with a longer term or do you just yeah. mainly... No, focus no, no. on what you've been doing for years and years on the, on the shorter term basis. No, I've actually made the pivot. I have, I, okay. I do now in my current role as managing partner of uh, Case Capital and as the chief market strategist at Billion Dollar Plus Wealth Management Firm is I have to have a more of a long-term role. It's great okay. to talk about what's happening in the short term, but investors don't invest for the short term. They invest right. for the long term, right. right? A trader, a trader trades in the short term. A trader doesn't even invest in the short term. He trades in the short term, but an investor, just the term alone suggests that it's a longer time period, right? Yep. Uh, and so today, yes, I've made that pivot from those days, those 40 years that I spent on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange representing institutions at the point of sale at that very moment in time yes. Yes. to buy or sell stock. And so I was very keen to feeling and understanding and responding to what was happening at this moment in time. And if the stock was under pressure, why it was under pressure, what I needed to do to represent that client appropriately at that time. So 
how has been that pivot? Because I, I know for myself, going too short term kind of time frame, I, I'm just not good at that. Uh, I learned the hard way that okay, that's not my thing. More of the intermediate and and being super long term isn't necessarily for me. So I find kind of the sweet spot for myself being more of the intermediate can slim type of strategy. How are you finding that pivot? Uh, uh, trying to extend that time frame. So I, I listen, I, I'm okay with the pivot, right? Because yeah. part of me is, uh, as I lean back on my own personal view and, and investing experience, because I, even though I spent all those years on the exchange and that, that was very much in and out, in and out, my yeah. personal portfolio, my personal, the money that I put away for the long-term as an investment to accumulate wealth was always very long-term focused, okay, right? I, yep. I wasn't, uh, I was never the short-term type of trader. First of all, it was too difficult to be a short-term trader when you worked on the floor of the exchange because you were so busy representing institutions at the point of sale that you couldn't do that and concentrate that and try to be. Sense, yeah. And number one, you couldn't do it. Number two, you couldn't do it from the floor of the exchange. You'd have to, if you wanted to buy or sell something when I worked on the floor, I'd have to leave the floor, go outside, be outside of the building. I'd have to, if I wanted to buy or sell a stock, I had to make sure that. I wasn't in that stock that day. I had to make sure no one in my firm was in that stock that day. So there were so many restrictions it became too onerous. And so yep. I never really did it, right? My that money was always long-term um, and, and, and so it's fine. So I was able to make that pivot with not too much difficulty, but I still very much like to talk also the short term because I love to talk about the markets, right? And I do oh, it yeah. every day in, in that daily blog that I write. Well, let's, now let's take a step back and how'd you get into this? Because uh, yeah, you, you've been on TV for, for many, many years and it's always great to watch and, and, and you're full of knowledge and experience. How did you end up in the place that you're at? Oh my God, how much time do we have? <laughs> so listen, you got to understand something. I was a kid from Boston, right? I didn't grow up in this. I didn't know what the New York Stock Exchange was. I didn't know a stock from a bond to buy from a sell and eight from a quarter. I knew nothing. When I graduated high school and went to college, I went to school in Washington, D.C. because I thought I wanted to be a politician and then the president of the United States. And thank God I'm not the president of the United States. I, I don't know why anybody wants that job, but one way or the other. When I was a, a freshman in college, I had the opportunity to go spend a summer in the New York Stock Exchange. And I had never been to New York. And I was a kid, like I said, I grew up in Boston. I spent my summers on Cape Cod. I was now 19 years old, just after my freshman year. And I had these visions of going back and putting on a bathing suit, and being a lifeguard on the beach in Cape Cod. I mean, but right before Baywatch, right? But does it get me better than that at, at 19 years old? And so yeah, when, I had this op yeah, when I had this opportunity to go move to New York City and go work on the floor of the exchange. Who the hell would want to do that? Because why would I want to be in New York City of all places? Why would I want to be in the city in the summertime? Why would I have to wear a suit and a tie in the summertime, right? When I yeah, wanted yeah. And so uh, my first reaction was no. And when I went back to college in the second, you know, second semester of freshman year, you know, I started talking to people and what were other kids at school doing for the summer. And, you know, a lot of kids were going out to get a real job, right? And I thought to myself, oh, shit, maybe I should reconsider this. Yeah. So I reconsidered and I thought to myself, okay, there's, there's, there's going to be two outcomes here, right? I'm going to go there and I'm either going to love it or hate it. And if I hate it, that's fine. I'll do it. I'll put it on my resume. It'll be great. And I'll move on. And if I love it, who knows? It could change the course of my life. Well, if you haven't figured it out by now, I absolutely <laughs> fell in love with it and it completely changed the course of my life. I went back to college in September of my sophomore year. I transferred out of school in DC and I transferred back to Boston University. I went to the School of Management because now I wanted to study business. I wanted to go back and work on the exchange. Now, listen, 
here's the deal. I was 19 years old and I stepped on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And if you've never been, for those people that are listening to this podcast who have never been, I can only say you missed the greatest place that existed. It was this phenomenal place that had 5,500 type A personalities running around, screaming, yelling, speaking in a foreign language, foreign language, meaning they were speaking in the language of the market, right? Yep, um, yep. The way they represent themselves as a buyer or a seller or how they represent themselves in an active crowd versus an inactive crowd. Days when there was news out, days when there was no news out. It was, and it was full of these very colorful personalities, right? Now, yeah. listen, my generation, and I'm now 60, but when I went there, it was 1980, my generation was the first generation that had any formal, real formal education, right beyond high school. Okay. Most of everyone yeah. that was older than me were people that had gotten picked up off the streets. Like, you know, they were kids that grew up in Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island and Manhattan. Yeah. They were Irish, they were Jewish, they were black, they were white, they were everything, right? It was, a, it was a mixture of everybody. The one thing that everybody shared was everybody was a type A personality. And if you know anything about type A personalities, they feed on each other, right? It's the most amazing <laughs> thing to watch. If you were a type B, you got run over because you know yes. because it was just not your style. I stepped onto the floor in May of 1980. And I remember just, just being in awe of the place. Even though I had no idea what was going on because I couldn't understand what was being said and how they were talking. They were talking in symbols and fractions. But there was just something about it that was so exhilarating that I couldn't even stand it, right? I couldn't, yeah. like, I, I, the bell rang at four o'clock and I ran home to go to bed so I could get up the next morning just to go to work because That's it was awesome. like, it was That's like so amazing, cool. right? Yeah. And so I was there for about three or four weeks and all of a sudden I just go, this is it. Like, it changed my, my whole mindset changed immediately. And so I spent that summer being, you know, a gopher. And I read a lot of newspapers. I asked a lot of questions. I wrote a lot of reports. I delivered buy and sell tickets, all the stuff that you would do when you don't know anything, right? Yep. So I went back to school. And then at the end of sophomore year, I went back again to work for that same broker. Uh, I spent the next summer. I was a little bit more educated. I understood. I could re-interact. I could react. I went back to school my, into my junior year. What you have to understand was happening in 1980, 81, and 82. The country had just come out of the Jimmy Carter years. We had just come out of the oil embargo, the Iranian hostage crisis. The economy was in a complete disaster. And Ronald Reagan became president in 1980. The economy was still spinning out of control from the Carter years. Reagan had just, by 81 and 82, Reagan had passed this massive Reagan tax reform package, very much like what happened in the first two years of the Trump administration, right, where they pass this massive tax plan. But the other thing that was happening was interest rates had skyrocketed. They were traded, interest rates were 21%. Inflation was running at 10%. Unemployment was running at 13%. It was a disaster. And there was no gig economy. There was no internet. There was no LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or any other, any other stuff. And so therefore, it was a disaster. And guys that were my age then were getting thrown out of the business because naturally, we were the older guys and the pay scale was higher and people losing money. And so how do you do it? You create efficiencies, you, you know, you let go of the you let go of the most expensive guys and you let go and the kids getting out of college couldn't get a job. That's how bad it was. And think about this for a minute. If you were anybody in 1980 or 81 or 82 that had any money at all, 
and your choices were you could take your money and walk into the bank and give your money to a banker who's going to put it in a CD and you're going to earn 21% guaranteed sleep at night, no risk. Oh my God, that's so ridiculous. Or you're going to take your money and you're going to go to a brokerage house and you're going to buy Johnson & Johnson and American Telephone and, and, and General Electric, which are all fine U.S. companies, except what are they? They're full of risk. Right. When the economy's in a bad place, and listen, again, 1980, the, although the world was connected, it wasn't connected the way it's connected today. Today, you know, something happens in China and we know about it in three minutes. Right. 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 Then you found out the next day when you picked up the newspaper. Yes. Right. And so <laughs> it was an amazing time to be there. It was an amazing time to be alive, but it was also a difficult economic time in the country, right? And so I went back in the summer of 1982. It was now my third summer there. And I went back to go work for the original broker that I had been working for. He was an independent broker. He did a very traditional broker deal of business. But remember what I said, a traditional broker deal of business was, was they were suffering. Why? Because interest rates were 21% and people weren't buying stocks. They were going to the bank. And so this poor guy, when I came back in uh, May of 1982, he put his arm around me and basically said to me, I can't have you. Like I can't listen. And I was making $125 a week. Yeah. And it was just $125 that this guy, he just, it was just another expense that he couldn't accept. Right. Yeah. So I thought to myself, wow, I go, okay, maybe this is the summer I go back and be a lifeguard on the right. bridge. But then I thought, you know, I was down here for three years. I knew a fair amount of people. And so I said, let me walk around and go talk to some people and just see what's going on, feel it out. I don't know, who knows? So I walked around the, the, the main room and I ran into this other broker who I knew, probably in his mid forties. He was a really dynamic guy. He, I love this man. He's the salt of the earth. He just turned 80 the other day on Halloween. And he's just, I, oh. I just love this guy. He had a different business. His business was option layoff business. And the options market in the early 80s was just taken off in Chicago. All these guys were trading these things called options. And every time they traded an option, they needed to hedge it with a stock transaction. And it was this option layoff business. And so this broker, unlike the other broker, his business was very much his option layoff business. So his phones didn't stop frigging ringing because it, the options guys were, were all of a sudden very busy, right? Yeah. He puts his arm around me and welcomes me back. Oh, it's so nice to see you, blah, blah, blah. I said to him, Mr. Latham, I said, I, you know, I just came to say goodbye because I'm not really staying because Doug can't have me. You know, Doug's business is not mm-hmm. doing well and Doug can't afford. And he looked at me, he goes, what are you talking about? I go, I, you know, I, Doug can't have me. So he said to me, let me ask you a question, kid. He goes, you know the symbol for IBM? I go, yes, sir, it's IBM. He goes, you know the difference between a buy and a sell? I go, yes, sir. He goes, you know the difference between an eighth and a quarter? I go, yes, sir. He goes, how's 250 a week? 250, I just got a freaking raise. Doubled. Are you kidding me? You doubled. My you doubled. eyes went like this. It was unbelievable. I go, when do you want me to start? Right now, I started right now. It was unbelievable. Anyway, so I spent the summer of 1982 working for him. Now, remember what I said to you. The Dow was trading at 792, 792. Tonight it closed at 29,438. <laughs> the average daily volume was 30 million shares on the day. Unbelievable. Today we traded, you know, 6.9 billion. We do 30 million shares in about a minute and a half today. Because then we did it all pen and paper. Yeah. Like today, it's, yep. today it's done with computers. And interest rates were 21%. 
right? And unemployment was 13% and inflation was 10% and it was really a disaster. The country was in a disaster. It was a tough time. It was Tuesday, August 17th, 1982. And I remember it like it was yesterday and here's the deal. On the Monday, there was a rumor floating around that the Fed was gonna come out and make this surprise announcement on Tuesday. Now, right away, everybody starts to question it because number one, the Fed never made surprise announcements. Right. The Fed would come out on Thursday mornings at 8.30. They'd open the door, they'd step out to a podium, they'd make a statement, they'd close the book, they'd turn around, they'd walk out the door and they'd shut the door. They didn't sit there all day and say, are you okay? Do you need a Xanax? Let's talk about this. Come sit on the couch, tell daddy how you feel none of that bullshit they came well, out they said what it was and it was up to the market to figure it out we'll take a quick break but when we come back we are going to talk about august 17th 1982 and what the fed announced there and how they really started something pretty special for the stock market stay tuned I am here with Scott St. Clair. Scott's one of our senior product coaches at MarketSmith. Now, Scott, there are a ton of publicly traded stocks just on the U.S. I think it's over 5,000 stocks. Who has the time to go through all of these stocks and find the very best ones? Yeah, most people don't, right? So what you need is a tool like MarketSmith. We have decades of research on what makes a great winning stock. So we've done all the research for you. So we're going to try to highlight those specific stocks with those great data points. So if you're looking for that next great potential big winner, orange stock ideas button, you just click on it and you've got some of the main reports that we use, including the Growth 250. Yeah, and the Growth 250 is the first list that I go through on the weekends. Yeah, it's the most popular one, but there are others. There's the Breaking Out Today, Stocks Near a Pivot, and then the Blue Dot List, right, which is very popular. It's going to show you the stocks with the best relative strength. So we've done a lot of the work for you. What you have to do is review these lists. You're going to come up with some of the best ideas in that current market environment. Perfect. Mark Smith saves you time and makes investment research that much easier. For more information, go to Investors.com slash podcast 2020. Kenny Polkari is our guest on Investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. Let's get back into one of the most significant days for the stocks, uh, and that's August 17th. 1982. So continue the story. So uh, now on the Monday afternoon, this rumor is starting to circulate in the floor. Now remember, there was no internet, right? So no LinkedIn, no Twitter, none of that. So there was no communication that way. And since there was no television or radio on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, the only way anyone on the floor got any information about what was happening in this world was when the phone rang and somebody from outside meaning on a trading desk, First Boston, Goldman Sachs, a regional broker, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, called you up to tell you this happened or that happened, or, right? And so uh, the word started to come down from the different brokerage houses, you know, that the Fed was going to come out, there's going to be this, this, this uh, surprise announcement on Tuesday and blah, blah. And so everybody laughed because the Fed never did that, right? And so we all went home that night and the market may have moved, the Dow might've been up 25 cents, or down 37 and a half cents. That was like a typical move in the market. Maybe okay. it was up 75 cents, right? And so we went home on Monday night. We traded 30 million shares a day. The Dow was at 792, not a big deal. So Tuesday morning, we all come to work. Now listen, the market opened at 8.30. So the, the, the flow would start to fill up with people like 7.30ish, quarter of eight, 8.15. People would get to work. They'd go to their boot spaces. They'd get the day started. They'd organize their tickets from the day before. They'd sit around and have coffee, read the paper, kind of shoot the breeze with the other brokers as you prepared for the day. Mm -hmm. 
So on that Tuesday, as 8.30 approached, you could almost feel the floor kind of get, you know, everyone's kind of curious. Okay, it's going to be 8.30, it's Tuesday. There's supposed to be this announcement, but we weren't going to know until the phone rang and somebody from the outside told us whether or not there was or there wasn't. It was about 8.30 and 30 seconds. Every single phone on the floor, it was like it rang all at once. And, and the rings, these phones, first of all, they were the institutional metal phones with push buttons. There were six buttons on each side. So each phone had the potential of 12 lines coming in. And the boot space was only as wide as my shoulders. And so I had two phones, one stacked on top of the other. So I potentially had 24 lines to go out, right? Wow. When they all rang at the same time, you could feel it immediately. Like you could feel the energy coming through the phone, right? And so you pick up the phone. And, and when I picked up the phone, it was a guy that I picked up the phone to a buddy of mine at First Boston who was ringing the phone. Yeah. He goes, did you see it? Did you see it? I go, no, I didn't see it. What happened? <laughs> so, he, so he tells you what happened. He goes, the Fed came out. Paul Volcker was Fed chair at the time. Paul Volcker opened the door, stepped out, got to the podium, and made the announcement that the Fed was cutting interest rates by 10%. Dude, 10%, that's two full percentage points. When rates are 21%, 10% is two percentage points. That's a massive move. Incredible. That's a massive move, right? I mean, today we're talking about rates going up by a quarter of 1% and everyone's having a nervous breakdown. What what was the Fed usually cutting? Well, they weren't cutting. Well, they weren't, right? Yeah, so- They weren't, they were actually raising rates into 1982, right? Wow, so Um, so just this drastic change. It was was a complete change in policy. And what the Fed's mission was, they were gonna break the back of the inflation, they were gonna Mm -hmm. break the back of economic malaise, they, by cutting rates, they were going to do what? They were going to force money out of the banks and right. into the market, very much like what they did in the great financial crisis of 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, <laughs> right? Where they right. cut, 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 and yep, they forced yep. money out of the banks. And look what it's done. They, they forced money into the market. And today yep. we're trading at about 30,000, right? Yep. And so that's what, they, that's what they did. And the Dow on that Tuesday every phone rang and then the orders started coming through and the orders weren't to buy 500 shares at General Electric or a thousand shares of American Telephone. It was buy 50,000 GE, buy 100,000 Telephone, wow. buy 50,000 IBM. It was it was crazy, right? Wow. Now, at the time I was uh, 20 years old. I stood there from 8.30 in the morning when the announcement came out till 4.30 in the afternoon. And all you did was pick up the phone and take orders and the order just buy, 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 buy. And the market exploded. The market went up four and a half percent. Four and a half percent was 35 points on the Dow. 35 points. Think about today. It's like nothing, right? But when you think about the percentage move, the percentage move on the Dow today would be, you know, 1800 points or 1600 points, whatever it is, right? Which also we've done, but we've done that with the help of technology. We did four and a half percent by pen and paper. Wow. Hand, you know, face-to-face negotiation. So it was amazing. It was amazing. And remember I said to you on Monday, we traded uh, 30 million shares, which was a typical day. On Tuesday, we traded 138 million shares. Oh my God. On Tuesday. So we did four times the volume. The market rallied four and a half percent. And we were there until, you know, eight o'clock at night, going through tickets, writing reports, making, confirming trades with other brokers. It was absolutely nuts. 
it was one of the greatest days of my that's life. incredible yeah. now like, like i can still feel it i tell that story and and like i can feel the energy in my body i could feel it like it was yesterday right now at that at that point did everyone especially for those who were on the exchange for a while was there just a feeling like everything's different now for for yes for dogs, the, the, for, for exchange it's a place to be now everything was different and and that was the birth of the greatest bull market that this country in the world's right. ever known right because right. if you go back and you look at the charts that was the day it was born and so then two weeks later i was scheduled to go back to college my senior year in college and mm -hmm. so the guy I was working for didn't want me to go back to college because now his it, the business his business is just blowing up yeah now i had spent three years i'd spent thirty thousand dollars because college was ten thousand dollars a year then all in ten thousand dollars a year i was going to bu i was going to community yeah. college i was going to bu right yeah. and uh i said to him look i go i really want to go back and finish college he goes oh why don't you just transfer go to nyu at night i go dude listen i know myself i could not work in this environment all day and then go sit in a classroom for three hours every night it would take right. me 10 more years to finish no way i'm not doing it <laughs> so he said to me no problem he said listen i get it go back to college have a good time. Have a great senior year. You have a job next May when you graduate. Is $36,000 a year okay? $36,000 a year in 1983, I hit the lottery again. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. I went back to college in September, clicking my heels because I had this job nine months out when I already said to you, kids couldn't get a job coming out of college, right? Right. What I didn't do, and maybe this is one of the lessons that, uh, that I should tell you anyway, what I didn't do when I went back to college that year was I didn't write a resume. I didn't go through the process. I didn't force myself to go through like the interview process and all that stuff mm -hmm. because I had this job that I so wanted. Right. I thought to myself, why would I want to screw it up and, and go on an interview somewhere? Yeah. But in retrospect, that was probably a mistake only because who knows? Who knows what, what could have happened? I could have gone on a, an interview with Goldman Sachs and maybe I would have been the next Lloyd Blankfein. What the hell right. do I know? Walk us through a scenario of that, of, of just, so, so you're on the exchange, you have your order and you're trying to, you know, get the best price for your client. Well, so I'm trying to get the best price. Now say you're my client, right? You call me up, you say, Kenny, I need to go out and buy 50,000 Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you've got a $40 limit. Right. You might have a $40 limit, but the stock's trading at $39.25, but you ultimately have a higher limit. Right. Okay. That's fine. So I now I know that. I have the order in my hand. I know what I have to do. I understand it. But I would walk out to the crowd and walk up to the specialist. And Coke was a fairly busy crowd all the time. It was a big stock. It was a big option stock. So it was always action in Coca-Cola, right? Okay. And so you'd walk into the crowd, you'd say to the specialist, how's Coke? And the specialist would represent his order flow, meaning what he was in control of, what was on his order book. And it was physically an order book. He would pull it down off the shelf. He'd open up the pages. Oh, wow. was, there was no technology. There yeah. was no computer screens, any of that shit. Yeah. It was a book, right? And so he would open up the book and he'd say, you know, um, 39, 25 bid off it at a half, 5,000 by 10,000. So that means he could pay 39 and a quarter for 5,000 shares and he could offer 10,000 at 39 and a half. That was okay. the market. But okay. then he'd say, there's two buyers in the crowd and one seller who are representing themselves. Okay. So then it was up to me to have the conversation with the buyer, with the other buyer, with the other seller to gather a picture of really what the market was. So I might say to the two buyers, what are you guys doing? Guys is, is generic because it could have been a female broker, but I'd mm -hmm. say, you know, what are you guys doing? And so one might say, you know, I'm a quarter buyer. So a quarter buyer means I can pay 39 and a quarter. 
I can't okay. pay 39 and three eights. I can't pay 39 and a half. I'm a quarter buyer. He's indicating that he's limited to a quarter. Okay. He said, I'll bid for 10. Now, he's not lying. He might have 100,000 to buy with a quarter limit. But when he says, I'll pay a quarter for 10, he's not lying because that's what he's willing to do. Yep. He's not sure what he wants to do with the other 90,000 shares yet because he wants to see what I'm doing. Am I a seller? Am I a buyer? If I'm a buyer, then I represent competition. So he doesn't want, he wants to say less to me versus more to me. If I'm yep. a seller, then he wants to engage with me more because as a buyer, you're looking for a seller. As a seller, you're looking for a buyer. If I'm a buyer, I'm not looking for another buyer. Right. I'm looking for a seller, right? <laughs> right. Right. And so then the other buyer might say, I'm a go-along bid. A go-along buyer, go-along bid meant, okay, I'm bidding a quarter, but I could pay three-eighths, I could pay a half, I really have a market order, Why? Wow. Right? Oh, yes, exactly. Now, yeah. he may not indicate the size yet, because again, yeah. he doesn't know what I'm doing. And then I'd turn to the seller and I'd say, what are you doing? And he says, that seller might stand up and say, listen, I'll offer 50000 at a half. So he's offering 50,000 shares of Coke at 39 and a half. He's willing to offer it. He's willing to say it. He says it out loud. He's made it very clear what he's doing. He's very eager to, to unload well, those shares or, well, he, or, or he, he could be bluffing at a, that point? Or? No, no, he's not bluffing. Oh, well, he's not it, bluffing because once you make an offer, okay. you make an offer. You make an offer, right. You can't, because okay. if I say take them and you go, oh, I'm only kidding, ah, 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 ah. it doesn't right. work that way. So no, that's not bluffing. Okay. But might have 250,000 more in his hand. Okay. Now, I don't know that. And the reason he's not going to tell me that again is because why would he tell me until he knows what I'm doing? Right. So I might say, listen, the minute he offers 50 and a half, I might say three eights for 50,000. Why would I say three eights for 50? Because there's already a quarter bid and the guy's yeah. not hitting the quarter bid. And if I bid a quarter, it just makes the quarter bid bigger. Yeah. And I want to buy stocks and I'm going to tighten the market. So yeah. the next, the increment in between a quarter and a half is three eights. Okay, okay. So I'd say three eights for 50. So now the two quarter buyers are out because I'm willing to pay three eights. And so the guy who can buy to the go along buyer, he might step up and say, well, I'll pay three eights for 20,000. So now it's three eights for 70,000. I'll pay it for 50, he pays it for yep. 20. Yep. So now you look at the seller and you say, listen, is a three eights bid for 70,000? Because he might have more for sale. Mm -hmm. And so he might say 70,000 out of half. Or he might say, I sold you 70,000 at three eights, 50 and a half. Yep. Which what means is he just sold 70,000 shares at three eights, of which I bought 50, the other guy bought 20. Mm -hmm. And he re-offered 50,000 and a half, which clearly tells you he's got more for sale. But guess what? I might say a quarter for 50 after I buy stock at three eights, which clearly means I got more to buy. Yeah. You understand? So is that but negotiating going back, so back and forth? That, but you have to understand, this is happening very quickly. Yeah, right? that's incredible. I'm making a bid. He's making an offer. We're trading. I'm rebidding. He's reoffering. The other guy comes in. He makes a bid. Another seller comes in. What just happened? 50 traded three eighths. I'll sell stock at three eighths. And so now you know, well, now there's a new seller at three eighths plus the guy at a half already sold stock at three eighths. I'm not going to pay three eighths. Now I'm going to bid a quarter because now that looks like there's sellers coming in and maybe okay. they're going to hit the quarter bid. Now yep. listen, every tick was 12 and a half cents. So between an eighth and a quarter is 12 and a half cents. So if I bought stock at three eighths and I bought stock at a quarter, once you average it out, I'm buying stock in the middle there, right? At, mm -hmm. at uh, right at, at, uh, at, uh, at uh, whatever it is, 15 and a half cents or whatever the number is, right? But that went on all day, every day, depending on the news in the stock that day, depending on what was the news in the market that day, what was the news in the industry? Was it weak macro data? Was it strong macro data? Because that was happening in every big stock. Yeah, right? that was it. it wasn't necessarily happening in Bank of Hawaii because who the hell wants to buy Bank of Hawaii? So there's no interest right. in Bank of Hawaii. But right. General Electric, American Telephone, IBM, Johnson and Johnson, Procter and Gamble, Abbott Laboratories, United Healthcare. Yeah, all those were very big 
market cap stocks. So they were big traders, right? Yep. And listen, Coke wasn't the only order I had in my hand. I might be a buyer in Coke. I might be a seller in ExxonMobil. I might be a buyer in IBM. And I have to go running around from stock to stock representing buyer, seller, right? And so now yeah. I'm a buyer in Coke and I run to IBM. I'm a seller in IBM, but IBM trades different from Coke because it's different price. So that number one, it's going to trade differently because it trades at $100 a share, not $40 a share. Mm -hmm. Is that where the, the when, when people say the feel for the market, you're developing yes. a feel for the market? Because you, that is intelligence right there. You're that, that There's that floor intelligence that you can hear and feel and-, and Feel it. You know, when you were, when you go to a concert and you're, you're close down to the stage and you're standing in front of the, the speakers and you know, yeah. when they start to play the music, you know, you can feel like the yes. music coming, like the vibration coming yeah. out of the speakers. Yeah. That's what it felt like every day. You could wow. feel that energy. Wow. Wow. Now, if the market was up, it was one energy. If the market was down, it was a different energy, yet it was energy, right? Yeah. You could feel yeah. it. You could, you had a feel for the market. You had a feel for when you walked into a stock, you could tell right away. There were three sellers and there were no bids. You could feel the anxiousness in the market, right? It was an art. It was a skill that you honed how to, yep. how to, how to feel it, how to read the tape, how to understand what was going on. And look, what everybody really misunderstood. And this was always an argument. Everybody thought that the specialist controlled everything, that the specialist stood at the point of sale. So he was going to pick the price of stock open. He was going to pick the price of stock closed. He knew exactly where it was going to open and close every day. If that was true, they'd all be trading for one day if they knew exactly where it was going to open, where it was going to close. Right. Right. That's so I guess boring. you're not a fan of the efficient market hypothesis then. So... I'm a fan of the efficient market hypothesis. I'm not a fan of the people that would say that the specials controlled where the stock went. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Because here's the deal. If you were my client and you called me up and you said, Kenny, I got to buy 500,000 shares of Coke in the next 10 minutes. Now, I don't care why you had to do it in 10 minutes. It was none of my business. You right. said, I have to buy it in 10 minutes. Okay, great. Well, let me ask you a question. Chris has an order of Coke that he's going to spread out for six hours. Yeah. And I have an order of Coke that I have to buy in 10 minutes. And it's not a thousand shares. It's a half a million shares of Coke. And Chris has a half a million shares, but he's got six hours to buy it. Yeah. So when I walk into Coca-Cola, am I going to be able to be like Chris and sit back and be patient and wait? Or do I have to be a tad bit more aggressive because I need to start to buy stock? Yeah, you, right? you're going to drive up that price okay. fast. And so, yeah. and so, bingo, you just said it. Who's yeah. in control of the price of that stock at that moment in time? Not the specialist. Right. I'm in control. Right. But That's guess who's really in control? You're in control because you're yeah. the client who gave me the order. So yep. when I walk into Coca-Cola and I say, how's the market? He goes, I'm a quarter bit off and at a half. I go, take him at a half. So I bought 30000 at a half. Great. How's the market now? I'll say I'm a half bid for 10,000. He goes, he goes, okay, it's a half three quarters. It's 50 and three quarters. I'll say half of 50. He goes, 50 and three quarters. I go, half of 50. Someone goes, 10, uh, 10 and five eighths. I'll take 10 and five eighths. I'm a half of 50, 50 and three quarters. Someone else says 10 and five eighths. I'll take 10 more at five eighths. Wow, I'm a half of wow. 50, 50 and three quarters. Take the 50 and three quarters. So now I took the 50 and three quarters. So now I bought the stock and a half. I bought stock at five eighths. I bought stock at yeah. three quarters. Next thing you know, I'm buying stock at the figure. Who is in control of the price of that stock at that moment in time? Me, right? No. Exactly. You're, right? you're driving and it up. Yeah. I'm driving now. If I were now, seller, you might be attracting other other people might be seeing this, and they're probably going to try to hop on. Exactly. To go for the ride. The, right? Exactly the point. And so, what would happen is other brokers that might be in the crowd, 
legitimate yeah. guys that were bidding below when I walked in, they're going to go because they have a responsibility to the client they're representing. Yeah. They're saying, yeah. listen, Goldman just came into the crowd. He's taking stock up to 40, which means he's an aggressive buyer. And yeah. that guy might say, listen, take the limit off and go along. Yep. Become a buyer with Goldman Sachs. And so all yeah. of a sudden now there's two people. And so who's driving the price of that stock? Not the friggin' specialist, right. not at all. Right. And now listen, if I were a seller and I had to sell a half a million shares in 10 minutes, it would work the other way, right? I'd hit a bit, hit a bit, hit a bit, hit a bit because I had to sell stock. Yep. Now, at some point I might say to you, I might take the stock up a half a dollar, which was a big move, even in Coca-Cola in 1983, 1984, taking the stock up a half a buck was a big move. Because what would happen? You'd take the stock up a half a buck, and that would create interest on the other side as well. All of a sudden, somebody, you're a, you know, Alexis is a portfolio manager, and she owns Coca-Cola. And in her mind, if Coke starts to trade at $40 or higher, she wants to start to peel out of some of the stock that she owns. Yeah. Now, all morning long, it's trading at 39 and a half. So she goes, ah, no, screw it. I'm not going to sell stock yet. Suddenly, it's trading at 40 and a quarter. And she goes, holy shit, I got to sell stock. And she calls up her right. broker. And she says, sell 100000 with a 40 limit. So it would create new order flow depending yeah, on the yeah, price that's yeah. why it was so dynamic it was yeah. so exciting it was i can feel my heartbeat right i mean it was mm. I, I, I like i could feel the sweat dripping down my back because that's the way it was every yeah. single day it was the most amazing experience that was august 17 1982 and the market you know took off from there and then the market proceeded to trade the dow went from 792 to 2800 by the summer of 1987 which was a dramatic percentage move in the market, right? But yep. it happened, and it, but it happened over five years. But it was still a dramatic percentage move. Stay tuned. We'll we'll we'll, we'll take it uh, after the break. We'll take it from 1987 and on. Stay tuned. MarketSmith will give you a huge edge in the stock market. Better stocks, bigger profits. MarketSmith is the top research platform for IBD. It's just the best tool for individual stock selection. Everything within MarketSmith is designed to bring those best stocks to the surface. It does a lot of the work for you of filtering down to the potential leaders. It's when you take the training wheels off and you're ready to invest on a more professional level. MarketSmith will help you take control of your investment life. If you want to get serious about investing, start your membership today. We are back uh, on Investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith, uh, here with Kenny Polkari. Kenny, now let's go to 1987. And so let's go over something significant. Obviously, we all know what happened in 1987, but there was a, a major kind of catalyst behind that uh, that's affected the market since then. And then we'll go into uh, three of your stock ideas. So what's significant for everyone to understand is 1987, the crash of 1987 was really at the very beginning of the advancing technology and the role that technology was going to play in the markets. And so it was a failure, but it was actually a human failure. You can blame it on technology if you want, but in fact, when you hear the story, you'll realize it was really a human failure. But as we moved into you know, 1985, 1986, 1987, when the Dow went from 792 on its way to 2800, there were huge gains in the market. They represented huge gains from people, you know, stockholders and shareholders and, and, and mutual funds and all that stuff in the market. There was a group of quants, right? Quant, the quant the industry day. was yes. really, was just being born, right? Okay. Computerization okay. and automation and, and algorithms and all this, all this stuff. I missed it in high school and I missed it in college because I was just, I happened to be on the front end at both, right? So I didn't have any computer skills in high school because it didn't exist. And, and when I went into college, I was studying business and the, you know, using computers and all that 
all that stuff wasn't kind of part of the curriculum, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. again, I, I missed out. But one way or the other, 1985, 1986, it became, you know, the, the, the computer science became like the new buzzword and all that stuff. And so there was a group of uh, quants and they were engineers, they were physicists, they were mathematicians, they were everything but economics majors or finance majors, right? They were all these brainiacs, right? They right, were all these right. rocket scientists. What they developed was this thing called portfolio insurance. And insurance is just what you know insurance to be. It's a, it's a product that you buy to protect you against a loss. Health insurance, disability insurance, life insurance, right? Car insurance, whatever. It protects you against a loss. And so what these guys did was design a product built off of a, an IBM mainframe server that you know probably took up you know five conference rooms because that's how big those servers were <laughs> right. at the time and what they wrote was they wrote this computer program that used to take in all this data and the data would be data from around the world it would be macro data it would be individual company data it would be pricing data it would be interest rate data uh, central bank policy data took all this data and they would feed it into the computer and and this and and if the computer, if there was something that the computer thought raised the eyebrows, meaning the, meaning the market was on the verge of selling off, it would initiate an instruction, right? It would tell you to do something. Okay. So if you were a mutual fund or a hedge fund or an asset manager that bought this product, then you were privy to that signal. If you were somebody who didn't buy the product, you wouldn't get the signal, right? They wrote it, they tested it, they wrote it, they started to sell it, they sold it to asset managers in America, they sold to asset managers around the world and Asia and Europe and whatever. And the product, like a lot of insurances, never got elected, right? There was never really a trade to say the world is falling apart. It's like, if you never die, your life insurance never gets paid out, right? right. And, so, and so as the market came in, as we came into the summer of 1987, the global markets had rallied. The global economy was strong. But once again, remember the global economy, although it was connected, it was not connected in the way we're connected today in terms yep. of in terms of the way uh, information travels. Over the summer, the U.S. economy started to falter a little bit. The, the economic data started to get a little bit of weak. It started to get weak, but it wasn't disastrous. But, you know, the Dow would sell off a little bit and then it would rally, then it would sell off a little bit. And the earnings season was a little bit weaker than expected. But it was nothing that was really causing concern after the move that the market had made, right? And it was happening not only in the States, it was happening around the world. The global economy was starting to come under some pressure. So... August came, the market got weak, and then September came, it rallied back a little bit, and then end of September into October came, the market started to get weaker again. We got into the midweek of October. It was the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It was the 14th, 15th, and 16th of October, 1987. And on the Wednesday, <clears throat> the market came under pressure, and it didn't bounce. It came under pressure, kept selling off, kept selling off. It closed on the low of the day. Okay. And so it was concerning, because then it was a big deal, because you know the market moved 70, 70 points on the Dow was a big move, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it closed on the low. And so then you came to work on Thursday and the market came under pressure again and global markets, Asian markets had been weak and European markets were weak and the US market got weak again. It came under pressure. And as the day wore on, the pressure, you know, it started to build on itself. And as we went into the close that day, the market once again closed on the lows. And then Friday came. Yeah. And, and Friday, global markets were really under pressure. 
and U.S. markets once again came under pressure and they opened lower and they traded lower and then they stabilized a little bit and they tried to rally and then they got hit again and they once again closed on the lows on Friday the 16th. I remember going home that night and I remember saying I was 26 years old and I had just gotten married. My daughter was just born. We had just bought a house. I had two cars in the driveway and a white picket fence. It was like yeah. I arrived, right? Right. And uh, I remember going home and I, I remember saying to my wife, because by now she had left the floor, right? She had retired from yep. being a member because stay home with the daughter and all that stuff. And I remember going home to her on that Friday night and I said, you know something? I, I don't know, but something tells me there's something going on. Like it doesn't now, feel Kenny. Like how often did three days in a row the market finishing at the lows it, that week? It might have happened in the crash of the Great Depression, but I wasn't there. In the right? Great yeah, Depression. but because you were now, it's right. like seven years in, right? You've right. never seen that. You never. I had saw never, never, never seen the market do that. Yeah, I was also twenty six. It wasn't like I had a lot to lose because I didn't. Right. I, I didn't have any money, right? But I remember going home and saying to my wife, you know, I don't know, something just doesn't feel right. But yeah. it was Friday night, Halloween was two weeks away. My daughter was six months old. We did the whole pumpkin picking thing and yeah. we cut the pumpkin and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and now Sunday night, I go to bed. Remember, Sunday night at nine o'clock in New York is Monday morning, 9 a.m. in Asia. That's just opening. Okay, so it's already Monday. When I'm going to bed, it's Monday morning in Asia. So what had happened over the weekend is that this portfolio insurance product, they, these guys took in all the data from the week, the pricing data, the macro data, blah, blah, and they fed it into Watson, or it wasn't oh called gosh. Watson at the time. They fed it into <laughs> IBM, right? Yeah. On Sunday afternoon, the, the computer spit out an action. And the action was, if you bought this insurance product, you got a message that said that you needed to sell 2% of your portfolio to raise cash to protect the portfolio. Because this way, you raise cash, you put it over here. If the market gets weaker, then you can put that cash back to work, right? Right, right. So who's the first one to get the message? Not the Americans, because we were sound asleep. It was Sunday night. So the Asian markets... Any, any portfolio manager in Asia got a message. You got to sell 2% of your portfolio. Okay, you're in Asia. You manage 100 million yen or whatever. And he, Chris, manages a billion yen. So his 2% is different from your 2%. <laughs> but the fact is it's 2%, right? Oh my gosh. And so you start to sell stocks to raise cash. Okay, so what happens is the Asian markets came under pressure. But then what they realized, these portfolio insurance guys, was because the Asian markets had this drastic reaction, because the Asian markets started to fall out of bed, that they ran the Asian pricing data back through the system. Oh, gosh. And the Europeans got a different message. Their message was they had to sell 3% of the portfolio based on what had happened in Asia, which means what? So now the percentage just went up. Yep. And so now what's going to happen? The European markets are going to come in under even more pressure because it's, everyone gets a sell order, not a buy order. Everyone's getting a sell instruction. Well, at least everybody that bought the product is getting It seems a like a lot of people bought this product. Well, a lot of, well, what ended up happening was as you recognized what happened in Asia and the sense was the European market was going to come under pressure, naturally what happens? Buyers don't just stand there and get run over by a train. They back off. Right. Okay, there are buyers there, but instead of paying 50, I'm going to bid, I'm going to bid 45. Yep. So there's this yep. void in prices. And yep. suddenly the European markets opened and their message was to sell 3%. And so their orders were bigger. And so the European markets fell even more. And so now I get up, it's five o'clock in the morning. Now, Asia's already closed. 
open and closed, right? Monday's already gone for Asia. Their market closed down, whatever it was, down down 5%, whatever it was closed down. European markets are now under assault. I get up, I take a shower. I get in my car. I go down to the train station. I get a cup of coffee and I pick up the Wall Street Journal. Okay. Okay. The Monday morning Wall Street Journal tells me what? Tells me what happened on Friday. Oh my it gosh. doesn't tell me. Monday's already come and gone in Asia. I'm yeah. not reading about what happened in Asia on Monday. I'm reading about what happened in Asia on Friday. So you still had don't no idea. Necessarily know. I wow. had zero so you, idea. Wow. Wow. Now I'm, okay. I'm on the train. I'm drinking yeah. my coffee. I'm yeah. reading the newspaper. Not a big deal. I get off the train. I get in the subway. I get to Florida, New York City at 7 a.m. There's hardly anybody there at 7 a.m. All of a sudden, the phone rings. Well, look. The phone never rang at seven o'clock in the morning unless somebody died because, right? The phone never rings at 7 a.m. in the morning. The market's not even open. So the phone rings at 7 a.m. in the morning and it's my buddy from First Boston. And now he's sitting up on the trading desk at First Boston where he has access to Bloomberg and the global markets. Now he knows I don't because I there were no Bloomberg machines on the floor of the exchange. There was no television, no radio. And I'm reading a newspaper that tells me what happened four (laughs) days ago. Right? Right. So the phone rings and he says to me, bro, he goes, it's going to be a bloodbath. I go, what's going to be a bloodbath? What do you mean it's going to be a bloodbath? What are you talking about? He goes, do you have any idea what's going on? I go, "Uh, I, I I have no idea what you mean. So he begins to tell me about the disaster in Asia and now what was happening in Europe. And he said, it's going to be a bloodbath in the U.S. markets today. And I sat there and I'm going, I'm trying to, you know, in my mind, I'm trying to define a bloodbath. I have no idea what he possibly could mean other than we were just going to get hit with, because he was now telling me about how Europe, now Europe was just spinning out of control, right? Mm -hmm. I think European Mm -hmm. markets at the time were down 12%. Oh my God. And uh, he said, it's going to be a bloodbath. And so now I prepared. Now I'm standing there. And all of a sudden it's, you know, 830. And all of a sudden the phone starts to ring and people are starting to enter orders at 830, which was another thing. People never entered orders at 830. It was way too early. The market didn't open until 930. But, But what happened was the same portfolio insurance guys, they now took the data that was happening in Europe and it was still happening live because Europe markets are still open. And they were feeding that data back into the computer system. And guess what the message was for the American asset managers that bought this product? You have to sell 5% of your portfolio. And so you see how the numbers grew exponentially. Yeah. And so now you as an asset manager, you spent money on this product that says you have to, this is the product's telling you to do this. So you have to do it. So now you're a human being, you got a brain in your head. But now the computer says you have to do this. Yep. Johnson and Johnson closed at $96 on Friday afternoon, October 16th. It closed at $45 on Monday night, October oh my God. 19th. It lost 50% of its value in six and a half hours. Wow. What do they do? Johnson and Johnson makes baby powder and baby oil. Are you kidding me? Right. But what happened was people sold what they could yeah. versus maybe what they should have because they couldn't sell what they what they should have. Who, who the hell wants to buy Bank of Hawaii when, right. when it's under pressure? Nobody. But you could always sell Johnson & Johnson because it was a big market cap stock. Right. But here's right. the point. You were happily buying Johnson & Johnson at $96 on Friday night. 
on Monday, it opens at 90, it trades down to 85, and, you, and you're sitting there going, wow, this is, it's trading at 85, this is down 10 points, it's got to be a buy, yep. so then the, all the trader types come in, and, and they start to make bids, and then boom, they get whacked, and then it trades down to 75, and they go, well, at 75, it, it's got to stop now, nope. Boom, it gets whacked. But now you're on the sell side of that trade. You're, you're the guy that's listening to his computer say, you have to sell, you have to sell, you have to sell. And you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, Johnson & Johnson is trading at $65. It's down $30 from Friday night's close. Wait, full stop, there's something wrong. But instead of saying that, you kept, because I would, as the broker representing it, I'd call you up and go, Arusha, are you sure you want me to keep selling this? Yeah. And you'd say, sell the stock. You're screaming yeah. at me to sell yeah. the stock. Stop talking to me and sell the stock. Okay. And so you go out there and you sell and you sell and you hit another bid and you hit another bid. And next thing you know, the stock is trading down $50. $50. And you're not, and you're, it's not just you. It's and, everybody. No, it's not just me. Everyone with the money, every fund manager. Every broker in the room is getting screamed at by the fund manager. Sell the goddamn stock. Okay. Incredible. And so what happened was, Instead of people going, wait, 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 wait. They didn't. They, it was like they took the brain out of their head and they put it over here and they just did what the computer told them to do. Now, listen, there were no circuit breakers at the time. Circuit breakers were born out of this event because then everybody realized what the hell happened is yep. that this technology spun so far out of control that nobody had the wherewithal to say, wait, 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 wait. There's something wrong here. It's not nearly this bad. Because by the end of the day, the Dow lost 22.5% of its value in six and a half hours. And that was the broad Dow. Individual names like Johnson & Johnson lost 50% of its value. That's incredible. The point of this story was that technology, that portfolio insurance was an algorithm mm -hmm. that was written by guys who had no idea how the market worked. They were physicists and engineers. They had no idea how the markets worked. They didn't study economics and finance. All they know was, you know, if A, then B, if B, then C, like a, like a flow chart used to be, right? Right, right. And uh, out of that event, everybody turned around and said, okay, what just happened, right? And so the industry in the country then built in uh, circuit breakers were born out of that event to, to prevent yeah. exactly that from happening. Which is now, what we saw like in February, right? The circuit exactly, breakers went off it, left it, and right. Circuit breakers went off left and right. And, and uh, circuit breakers have gone through a number of iterations since they were born in 1987, you know, the, in terms of how you how we calculate them today versus how we calculated them then. And part of that is because the advances in technology and the speed at which stocks trade and the venues in which you can trade them at. And so there's a whole different set of rules today. But yet circuit breakers were built out of that event. And so that what was key about that event is that it was this technological program that was built that started to dictate when to sell stocks and the weaker stocks got, the more pressure it put on it, right? Yeah. Because selling yep. begets selling begets selling. Yep. Yep. And so as prices broke down, the computer would say, you have to sell more, you have to sell more, you have to sell more. Because yeah. in order to raise the cash, as prices got weaker, you had to sell more, Yeah. right? And so- Self-fulfilling prophecy. It, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. What it really brought to light in retrospect was how the human beings didn't go, wait, full stop. There's something wrong here. Yeah. Right? But they didn't. They didn't, you know, the market lost. Listen, there were people that got wiped. Some people got wiped out. I remember, listen, remember I said, I didn't have any money to lose. Although I thought, I thought that was it. I thought I was out of a job. I was gonna lose my house. Yeah. I, 
you know, I thought the, I thought like the world came to an end. Right. And the world clearly did not come to an end. But there were plenty of guys who were my age then. Oh my god who had money in retirement accounts that was invested in the market that saw 50%, you know, 22%, sometimes 30, 40% of their, of, of their, of their retirement funds just wiped out. And there were guys who were 60 years old who were going, Holy shit. I, I, I don't have time right. to wait to make this up. Yeah. I mean, there were guys that just got absolutely decimated. Right. Yeah. It was a really, I mean, listen, I remember that day too, like it was yesterday. Like I can, I can feel the emotion in my body when I think about what I felt during the day that day and, and the pressure that the market was under and the looks on people's faces and the fear, the real fear, right? Yeah. So uh, Kenny, let, let's, let's take a break. Then what we'll do is we'll come back uh, very quickly and we'll go with some stocks. And I think a, a good segue to this is we'll talk about tech stocks. <laughs> so we'll cover a few uh, tech stocks very briefly and, and uh, uh, we'll be back. Okay, so stay okay. tuned. I am here with Scott St. Clair. Scott's one of our senior product coaches at MarketSmith. Now, Scott, there are a ton of publicly traded stocks just on the U.S. I think it's over 5,000 stocks. Who has the time to go through all of these stocks and find the very best ones? Yeah, most people don't, right? So what you need is a tool like MarketSmith. We have decades of research on what makes a great winning stock. So we've done all the research for you. So we're going to try to highlight those specific stocks with those great data points. So if you're looking for that next great potential big winner, orange stock ideas button, you just click on it and you've got some of the main reports that we use, including the Growth 250. Yeah, and the Growth 250 is the first list that I go through on the weekends. Yeah, it's the most popular one, but there are others. There's the Breaking Out Today, Stocks Near a Pivot, and then the Blue Dot List, right, which is very popular. It's gonna show you the stocks with the best relative strength. So we've done a lot of the work for you. What you have to do is review these lists. You're going to come up with some of the best ideas in that current market environment. Perfect. Mark Smith saves you time and makes investment research that much easier. For more information, go to Investors.com slash podcast 2020. Welcome back to Investing with IBD, sponsored by Market Smith. And we're going into a bonus fourth segment here of the episode and uh, we're going to get into some stocks here uh, uh, pretty quickly. And so, Kenny, we're, we're going to go on a team technology stocks since <laughs> you, you, you excited all of us about technology and how it could change the markets back in 87. Let's go into a theme here and, and the Internet of Things, right? This is only right. going to be growing and growing. So, so walk us through. The first one is an ETF, uh, and the ticker symbol is SNSR. Right, sensor, right? So yes. the Internet of Things, just so everyone understands, is that part of the Internet that connects all these things that we now live with. So it's your iWatch, it's your, it's your, your Nest, uh, your Nest thermometer yeah, it's your ring central yeah it's your it's your ring central that 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 yeah. you know uh, the cameras you put around your house or your front yeah. door and your doorbells and all the stuff that connects us the, the things that talk to your washing machine and your refrigerator tells you you're out of milk and all that stuff right yeah but that's the internet of things right and so in my mind, when people talk about technology, most people think about the FANG stocks as if they're the only five names in the whole space of technology. <laughs> right. Meanwhile, they are not. Let's make that very clear. While they, while they garner all the attention, there are so many other opportunities in the tech space in order to allocate dollars to and allocate investment dollars to, right? And I think the Internet of Things is just on the cusp of 
uh, being an opportunity, being a place that investors should have in their portfolio. And certainly, you know, at 60 years old, I might have a different allocation than a 30-year-old might have. Right. But as a 30-year-old, I think if you want to put money into tech and you're looking for a place to put it, I think the Internet of Things, and listen, that, that includes software, it includes uh, communication devices, it includes the devices themselves. So there's a lot of subsectors within that that you can find places to put to put money. But if you want the broad exposure, Sensor, SNSR, is an ETF that gives you that exposure. And in fact, today, the market got hit, but this thing was only down nine cents, partly because, yeah, did it get hit? Yeah, it got hit a tiny bit, but, right. but it didn't get hit more because the, what it represents is it really does represent the future. It represents opportunity, represents it's part of its artificial intelligence, part of its, mm -hmm. you know, all this stuff that the future is going to be. And so you look at other stocks, like, you know, I mean, you look at other ETFs, the XLK got whacked it. That was down, uh, that was down 1%, the XLK. The SNSR wasn't even down, it was down nine cents. So what was it yeah. down? Not a whole lot in comparison, right? And so I think that's a, I think that's a place that you look. And then within that, if you look at some of the names within that, and I think I gave them you didn't I give them yeah, so so let, let's go into a, one of these names, and this is a Sense of Tech, uh, ticker symbol ST, and um, yeah. So so what do you like about these guys? Sensata Technologies. Sensata right? Tech. Yep. Sorry. Yep. Sensata Technologies. Um, and so uh, wait, it's ST. Is this no? Uh, is it ST Sensata Technologies? Yeah, yeah, yeah ST. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. What these guys do is they have, they manufacture the components that go into a lot of these sensors, the automated sensors, the 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 things that are communicating right yeah. into the Internet of Things. And so there's a you know it trades at forty eight dollars a share. I think if you look at it on the chart, so you can see where it is. I, when I look at it on my Bloomberg chart, it's well ahead of all three trend lines: the fifty, the mm -hmm. hundred, and the two hundred. Yeah. Um, and it's testing; it's just pulling back a little bit, but that makes sense because the market's pulled back a little bit. But it's by no means breaking down yep. in my mind. You look at some of these other stocks that are. Some of the other tech names, the big names that you're always talking about, some of them have already broken through the 50 and 100 day moving average. And so That's technically true. they're kind of broken. And so you'll get algorithms that will react just because they've broken down. But like yep. a stock like uh, Sensata Technologies, you can see is still holding its own even in today's weak market. I suspect if the, mar the broader market gets weaker, this will come under some pressure, but it will also be very quick to rebound because of the space that it's in, right? I think yep. it's, I, I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's not Facebook, it's not Twitter, it's much it's my, in my opinion it's much more important to where the world is going where technology is going perfect let's go to another one this is skyworks ticker symbol swks this one it was hanging right in between its two technical uh, trend lines today right. it did break down it did break down a little bit this stock does as well it's a wireless semiconductor company right so it designs and manufactures the stuff that that allows these uh these things to talk wirelessly to each other uh, again right. i think it's a very i think it's a very interesting space yes did it come under some pressure today yes has it broken down but look at right on your chart there 134.84 would be a level that you'd think it would find or it should right. find some some support and if it does then i think it holds that and once again it, it'll advance from there but i think look i i think when you think about any of these things you have to think about where the market is and kind of the overall tone in the market and mm -hmm. right now there's still a lot of angst in the market due to kind of an unfinished political Political season, and I'm not talking about the presidential election. I'm talking now about the Georgia state right. election, which could right. which could then flip the balance of power. And so I think there's some volatility in the days ahead. But if you still have, and you know, we have this conversation. If you've done your homework and you've got stocks that you know the story is right, the fundamentals are right, then mm -hmm. on uh, unless they break down or unless the story itself changes. 
there's an opportunity to uh, pick up some stock and you might pick up some stock uh, relatively cheap compared to where it's been trading. Right? Perfect. And, and so ahead. one more Qualcomm, which, which, which we all know they're, they're major player. They've been a major player for many years, but right. uh, it's a 5g is here. And of course also internet of things, they, they play a big role. Right. Now look at this huge gap here. Right. Yep. So my sense is you got to be careful with this one, just as much as I like it, you got to yep. be careful here because there is going to be a tendency for the stock to want to come back and fill this gap at some mm -hmm. point. Now, right. my, my guess is that we may see that happen this month because if it gets, if the market gets anxious, right. this, because of that gap, this will yep. come right back. But if mm -hmm. it comes right back, I think right in here at this, at this line, right in or, here, or right, here. right or, there. Or the 50 day moving average uh, around there. Could yeah, right in there yep. is where you would look for it to play. So I wouldn't be so quick to go chasing Qualcomm at the, at the moment. Okay. I like it, but I like it on a pullback and partly because of this gap. Mm -hmm. um, I think you can be patient with this, but I think you're going to have the opportunity. No, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that, that stock has gone up on a, a really big run and, and so it could take a rest, especially if the market takes a rest. Uh, right. So there are a few ideas that are worth considering. Thanks, Kenny, for joining us today. This was this was uh, a great education and we're definitely gonna, we only got to, where do we get to? 1987. So you're only 26 <laughs> years old in the podcast world. Uh, so, so we're gonna have to bring you back soon so you can continue your story. Yeah, I didn't even get through the, the 90s, which was really an amazing time in the Love industry. That, yeah. And then the turn of the century and 9-11 and the role that that played yeah. really in, in, uh, in the development design of, of where the markets are today. But that's another story for another podcast, but call me because I'm happy to finish it. That's awesome. So thanks so much. Uh, so next week, we will have Scott St. Clair back on the show. He is one of my uh, fellow market smiths, and uh, he's going to come back and, and we'll talk about the, the current market and a number of other things. So that's it for this week on Investing with IBD. I'm Arusha Paris, and thanks for listening. And for this week's Nilton Charts, make sure to go to Investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.